Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. Hey, welcome to Chris. Happy Merry, Merry Christmas. I did that last service too. We are so glad that you're with us. I just, I'm so excited. Uh, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at FBH, and we are just ecstatic that you're, uh, you're with us. We hope your Christmas Eve is going, going well thus far. Um, I, I don't know if you're like me or not. I love Christmas time. Like, I love Christmas time so, so much. Uh, and I know everybody is supposed to say that they love Christmas time, right? I don't think you're allowed to say, oh, I hate Christmas time, you know. Um, but I, I, I love Christmas so much. Actually, this year, we, we ended up setting up Christmas on November 1st this year at our house. We're not normally those people, but this year I was like, it's Christmas. Like, let's go. Let's, uh, I was so excited for Christmas. And honestly, I really do feel like there's two types of people when it comes to, uh, to Christmas time. Uh, you, you either do what is kind of like socially required of you, right? Put up an, a couple lights enough to, to make sure that your neighbors know that you're not Jewish, right? You celebrate Christmas. Um, uh, and, and you have the same fake tree maybe you've had for 30 years. All the pre-strung bulbs have burned out but you're, too, you're not going to go buy a new tree, um, and so instead you just restring new lights over the, the dead ones that you have on your, uh, your, your Christmas tree, and you are always so excited to watch your kids open presents because you don't know what your spouse got them this year, right? Like you are so pumped to be able <laughs> to see that. And then there's those of you who fall into like the Buddy the Elf category, right? The other category, it's like all Christmas, all the time. You've got a thousand different ceramic houses in your living room right now that are all part of Santa's workshop somehow and all of them have snow on them. And to be fair, if you're going to accurately represent our Christmas time, uh, they should just be surrounded by fog all the time uh, in, your, in your living room. But, but you have those. Um, you're the only person on the block whose electricity bill goes up at Christmas time because the sheer amount of lights that you have uh, on, on your house, and then you, uh, you actually finish up your Christmas shopping um, over the 4th of July, right? And I, th- I think there's, there's room for both types of those people um, at, at Christmas time. You know, maybe you fall somewhere on that spectrum between uh, Buddy the Elf and, and Ebenezer Scrooge. But regardless of how you feel about the Christmas season, one thing that we need to make sure is clear is that, that Jesus wasn't just born and placed in a manger because God thought it would be a cool kids program one day. Right? And I think oftentimes that's kind of the way we look at the Christmas narrative, the nativity. It's how we kind of look at it. But, but we need to recognize that the manger, was, the manger was a necessity. But we don't think of it oftentimes like that. We think of it as a time to be with family and a time to be with friends and bake cookies and have parties. And, and while those things in themselves aren't bad, make no mistake, the, the manger wasn't about ugly Christmas sweater parties. That wasn't the intention of the manger. So the question then becomes, why is the manger necessary? Right? Why is it that Jesus came to earth? And I'm going to say this before I dive in too much. If you came here hoping to hear about shepherds and the manger and angels and the wise men and all that stuff, you're not going to hear it tonight. Hey, this isn't your, your normal Christmas Eve uh, sermon, mostly because the first half of this message, we're not going to talk about any of that. We're not going to talk about Mary or Joseph or anything like that. Because in order for us to understand the necessity of the manger, we have to first talk a little bit about us. We have to consider you and I as we are thinking about what, what the purpose of the manger is. When I was in seminary, um, we walked through... 
uh, as we were walking through seminary, we, we walked through a bunch of different types of categories of theology. Theology is the study of God, right? And so there's all these different categories. And so the way that you study it is called systematic theology. There's actually a famous book written, famous for nerds who went to seminary, uh, by the name of Wayne Grudem called Systematic Theology. And outside uh, of our Bible, that was the most important book that we studied. And it breaks down all the different theologies based based around uh, around the categories. So we studied angelology, right? And angelology is the study of angels and demons, like the spiritual realm, essentially. And then uh, we, uh, we studied ecclesiology, which is a study of the church, how the church should function, that sort of thing. We studied pneumatology, which is concerned with the, uh, with the Holy Spirit. But what most people don't realize is why, while the Bible isn't written about us, the, the Bible is written about God and about his son. It's the redemption story of God. While it's not written about us, there's a whole lot of stuff in there uh, that actually pertains to us and who it is that, that we are. And that section of theology is called anthropology. And as you study anthropology, you come to recognize that, that you, you come to see ourselves in a very, very clear way, a more clear way than we can see by studying anything else, by studying psychology or philosophy or whatever it may be. That as we look at scripture, we come to an understanding of who we are. And so the Bible is clear that God created us male and female for the purpose of his glory and to rule the earth. If you were to look at Revelation chapter 4 verse 11, it says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will they were created and they have their being. So God gets the glory for his creation. This is John who's writing this, and he's writing it specifically about, about Jesus. And so God receives that glory and honor because of what it is that God has, has created. I mean, think about it. For your parents, maybe your grandparents, aunts and uncles, whatever it may be, uh, you've probably gotten a picture from a little kid before who, like, colored the picture for you, right? And it's, it's the most wonderful picture you've ever received. But when you get that picture, you don't praise the picture. You don't look at the picture like, man, smiling son in the corner of that picture. You are so fantastic today. No, you don't talk about that with the, the, to the picture, to the drawing. You talk about it to the kid who made it for you. Talk to the creator and say, man, you did so great. I am so proud of you for what it is that you have created. And so it's kind of the same understanding that we get, that we get here with God and with humanity. God created us. He gave us life. And because of the fact he created us, he's glorified. And that's where the story, like if that is where the story were to end, then there's no necessity for the manger. That God created us, it is very good, as it says in the book of Genesis, and we're good, we can walk away. But then, like I said, no necessity of the manger. We can just kind of get on with our lives and go get to our matching pajamas. The problem isn't in the book of Revelation. The problem is actually found in the book of Genesis. And so specifically, if you were to look at Genesis 1.27, you would see that God created Adam and Eve in his own image, is what it says. And that's really, really important for us to be able to understand who we are. So if you think about that idea, humanity was a perfect reflection of God's image. We were holy. We were set apart. We were the pinnacle of God's creation. That's why he said everything is good. And when he created Adam and Eve, he said, you are, this is very good, right? We go next level with the entire thing. But beyond that, bearing God's image means that we as humans have the ability to know God, 
We have the ability to love God. We have the ability to love others. And beyond that, we possess a moral responsibility to other people. Even more, we, we, had, we had unhindered fellowship in the garden with God during, or in the midst of creation. In Genesis 2, we see this, this incredible scene, actually, of, of God and Adam and Eve, once, once she's created, talking and having conversations with one another, just like you did as you were walking in earlier. It's absolutely incredible to see that, to see that unhindered fellowship created in God's image, pinnacle of creation, still sounds pretty good right? Like if anyone says that I am the pinnacle of anything good, I'm going to be pretty pumped about it. And that's the reality of where we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 2. God told Adam and Eve at that point, be fruitful, go make some babies. So they're fruitful, they make some babies, but then Genesis 3 rolls around. Adam and Eve willfully sinned against God and brought death and sin to all people. And I'm sure you know the story, even if you don't come to church often. I'm sure you know the story because it's popular in pop culture and all of that stuff. God says you, can't, you, you can eat anything you want, anything that you want. Look around the garden, anything, except just this one, this one little thing right here. You can't do that. But anything else you can, you can go and do. Don't eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve, as you know, decide to ignore God. The enemy talks them into taking a bite. And from that point forward, all of us who were created in God's image, all of us who were set apart and holy, who had unhindered fellowship with God, now, now are a distorted representation of the image of God. At that point, we are no longer holy but sinful and have a broken fellowship with God. Parents, grandparents, you probably, you probably can recognize this a little bit as you're talking to your kids, right? It's Saturday. It's a nice day outside. And you're like, you can go do anything you want. Go outside and play. Go jump on the trampoline. Go hop a fence. Go get in trouble. Break your leg. I don't care. Go outside. Just get off of technology. Okay? You're not allowed. You can't, you can't watch TV. You're not allowed on your, your device. You can't, watch, you can't play on Xbox or anything like that. Just go outside and do something. And they look at you and they say, okay, sounds good. And then they go outside or maybe they pretend to go outside. Right? And they turn around, come back here, and you walk back, and you just see their face with this lit up like blue from the cell phone light that's coming off of, off of their hands. Right? And you're literally like, you can do anything. Just don't do that. And what do we do? We go and we do that, that one thing. Trust is broken. Right? The one rule that was given was broken. Trust was lost. Not great, right? But what does, what does that mean then? What does that mean for us? The idea of, of sin entering into the world. And hear me, don't, don't tune me out. We're going to get to the manger, I promise. But unless we set the stage for it, then there is no way we can appreciate why the manger is necessary. So what does it mean? That means that even though God in his love for us, created us, sin has now entered into the world and we are all guilty. Not just guilty of our own sinful inclination, right, the sins that you wrestle with on a daily basis, but beyond that, we are also deemed guilty because of Adam's sin as well. Psalm 51.5 tells us that surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That's a, that's a hard verse to kind of wrestle with. 
I don't like that verse personally because I don't like being guilty by association. I don't know about you. It's the worst type of guilty. You didn't even get to do anything and you're still guilty. And so we're guilty by association. We're guilty because of Adam's sin, the original sin that happened back in the garden. It's called imputed sin is what it's called. And then Romans 3.23 then says also, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so if you're hung up on the idea of I don't like being guilty by association, that's fine. Romans 3.23 tells us that, you know what, even if you weren't guilty by association, which we are, you're still guilty based on your own sin as well. So if you're hung up on that idea, just get past it because the reality is that all of us have sinned and all of us have fallen short of God's glory. So we're sinful. What does that mean? Great question. Okay, sin means anything that is contrary to the character or the will of God, in either action or in thought. Depravity has permeated every part of humanity, including our mind and our will and our emotions, and the worst part of all of it, the result of sin, both by nature and by choice, renders every single person unable to be accepted by God and leads to a physical death and to those not in Christ, a spiritual death as well. In short, we cannot good our way to heaven. It is impossible to do. And can I just say, I hate that too. I think it would be so much easier if I could control it. If I could just be good enough, if I could do enough good things, if I could just write a check large enough in order for me to cash at the pearly gates when I get there, I'm like, St. Peter, here's my tithe. And just get in that way, right? I would make my list. I would check it twice. I would make sure I'm not naughty, but nice. Sorry, I did it last service, and I hated it last service too. Instead, I read that there is nothing, though, that I can do to earn my way into heaven. The Bible tells us that actually in Ephesians chapter 2. So unless God does something to get me to heaven, I am staring down the barrel of eternal separation from God. A real physical location called hell that's devoid of everything good and righteous and holy. It's not a party. The Bible describes it actually as weeping and gnashing of teeth. And everything in the Old Testament is God showing humanity that there is no way that the people of God can good their way into heaven. They are incapable of following the law. They are, they are incapable of listening to the prophets. They don't listen to the judges, right? They don't listen to the kings. And the Old Testament closes with the promise that God is going to intercede on behalf of his broken and fallen creation. And then for 400 years, years. When the book of Malachi ends in the Old Testament for 400 years, there is silence as the people of God wait for a way back to an undistorted, unhindered fellowshipping with him as his pinnacle of creation, a dark, difficult, deafening silence as they wait. So we understand the necessity of the manger. That humanity needed a way back to God. But why then does it give us hope? There's a famous pastor named Louis Giglio. He's got an incredible quote that reads like this. It says, we go from Malachi to Matthew in one page of our scriptures. 
But that one piece of paper that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament represents 400 years of history. 400 years where there wasn't a prophet, 400 years where God's voice wasn't heard. And that silence was broken with a cry of a baby on Christmas night. This is where it happens in Matthew 121. It says, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. We have to understand since Genesis chapter 3, the only hope that humanity had was to be perfect and holy and set apart, to, to live a life that was blameless and live a life that was pure, to be credited for our righteousness and to be credited for our faith was the only way back to God. There was nothing but waiting and anticipation and following the Ten Commandments. That was it. But God had promised a way back that he was going to come and rescue his people. Actually, Isaiah 9-6 talks about it hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus even shows up on the scene. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Just waiting and yearning And the hope of the world is then delivered in Luke 2, 6, and 7. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And while there's angels and shepherds and eventually wise men, the Savior of the world didn't come with all the pomp and circumstance. He didn't come with a political agenda to overthrow the government. He didn't come to be served but instead came to, came to serve. And on that night, that silent night, there was no one but a handful of people knew that, that what was broken thousands of years before in Genesis chapter 3 was about to be rebuilt through God incarnate. Right, The author and perfecter and sustainer and creator of the universe stepped down from heaven in order to provide a path forward for all of us. He didn't come to be served but to serve. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 tell us that. Who being in the very nature God, he's talking about Jesus here, did not consider equality with God something, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. See, Jesus was, it was ready and willing to be born and placed in a manger to parents that were ordinary. In a town that was forgotten. In an inn that was full. For the sake of all of humanity. The hope that the people of God were waiting for showed up. In the most unimaginable way. But the beauty of this moment isn't the birth of Christ. And while that is important, this wasn't just something that we celebrate because it's adorable and and we should adore him. This was the answer to prayer. This was the answer to fasting. This was the answer to the waiting. This right here is, is the climax of the movie. The orchestra is playing. The crescendo is happening right here as we, as we see this in Scripture. Because this was the start of Jesus, not, 
not coming to stay as a child, but, but coming to become the son of man, to show his power, to point people towards God, to fulfill the prophecy of the Old Testament, and most importantly, to provide that long-awaited pathway back to God, which is what the Gospels are mostly about, the work and ministry of Jesus, the healing of the sick and the afflicted, the teaching with authority, both full of grace and truth, but we can't have the Gospels apart from why he came and why the manger is a beacon of hope. At the end of the day, Jesus came not just to live and show us how to be moral, Jesus came for the redemption of all mankind, and the only way to accomplish that was for him to offer up himself to death for everyone. Remember how I talked about earlier that, that all of us were considered guilty because of, because of Adam's sin? The great thing about the story of Jesus is that he flips that entire narrative on his head. And in the same way we were found guilty by one man, we are now found righteous by another. We are found blameless by God because Jesus interceded then on our behalf. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ died for us. Jesus paid the price for our sins. Jesus' resurrection proves that God accepted Jesus' death as the payment for our sins. And when Jesus goes, when Jesus goes to the cross, when he bleeds and when he dies and eventually conquers death on Easter, the way back to God has been completely and totally restored, not by our penalty of physical and spiritual death, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is nothing any of us can do in order to get back to God. Romans 10 tells us that all you have to do is believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And once we recognize that, Romans 8, 39, or Romans 8, 38 and 39 tells us, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. The necessity of the manger is found in our inability to get back to God apart from God, but the hope of the manger is firmly rooted in the death of Christ who paved our way back to Him forever. Christmas is a time to celebrate the incarnation. It celebrates the time when the silence of God was completely and totally interrupted by the Savior of the world coming to redeem who He loves most, us. Because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but will have eternal life. Stand with us. Let's worship that God tonight.